Amos and Obadiah as we continue our survey of the Old Testament. In, in some ways, these uh, two books are quite different. Uh, Amos has nine chapters. Obadiah just has one chapter. Uh, they are written to different, uh, addressing different groups of people. And yet there are ways in which they are very much alike. Uh, we will see in both of these books God's concern for the spiritual condition of people. And, and whether those people are Jews or non-Jews is not the issue. It's their spiritual condition. I think it will help us uh, as we look at the books to see that sinfulness is displeasing to God no matter in which kind of people it's found. And, and it makes us, uh, I think, face the question, has God changed? And the answer is no, God has not changed. God is concerned about the spiritual condition of all people. Not just his people, not just those who are not his people, but all people. We see that in Amos and Obadiah. Let's talk about uh, Amos and Obadiah. Let's start with Amos. and Let's start, start with the man, Amos. Uh, the, the, the beginning of the book, uh, carrying his name, gives us an idea of who he was. This happens, uh, we've seen sometimes in the prophetic writings and then other times and we'll note again this morning, it doesn't. Let's notice verse 1. The words of Amos, who was among the sheep breeders of Tekoa, and so on. Um, it, it, it says he was a sheep breeder or herder in some versions, I think. And uh, the, the area which he lived in that we're going to talk about in just a moment was an area for sheep because it wasn't really a farming area. It wasn't a, a place where you could uh, grow crops necessarily. But sheep could and did thrive in that area. Later in the book, he also says something that seems strange to us, but really wasn't strange when he wrote it, that he was a dresser of sycamore trees. And um, I, I think probably moderns, when we think of sycamore trees, we don't what would you do with the sycamore tree? The, the sycamore tree that is talked about here produced a kind of fruit <laughs> that needed to be pierced in order to ripen. And that, that was one of the things he did. And probably when he wasn't tending sheep, he was trying to take care of these fruit trees. They would have been a type of fruit tree. Um, Tekoa. It's an interesting place because it was 12 miles south of Jerusalem. We're very familiar with Jerusalem. And about six miles or less south of Bethlehem. Um, it, it might be worth noting, although it's not really important, but I think it's worth noting, that even though it was very close in proximity to two New Testament mentioned cities, Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Tekoa is never mentioned in the New Testament at all, not at all. Amos 
telling us he's a sheep breeder. And later on, we'll see that he talks about his background and why it didn't really prepare him for what he was doing. Um, ha had no background as a prophet. Um, and he relates how he came to function in that capacity in chapter 7. If you look at Amos 7 and verses 14 and 15. Now this is in response to a, a kind of a warning from Amaziah, a priest of the northern kingdom. And he tells him, you know, don't prophesy here. But notice Amos' reply. Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor was I a son of a prophet, but I was a sheep breeder and a tender of sycamore fruit. Then the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. And so God makes a choice of a sheep breeder or herder, and he says, I want you to go and be uh, my prophet. In chapter 1, verse 1, we also are able to pinpoint the time in which he worked. He's very specific in saying, which he saw, the words of Amos, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Isaiah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, uh, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Gives us a pretty good fairly close time. These kings rule some time, and so, and incidentally, there is no specific time of an earthquake that we can relate this to historically. Now, that earthquake was evidently bad enough that it is remembered later in history and is spoken of through a prophet who would prophesy perhaps some 300 or more years later. So it was a great historical uh, event, and, and, and it is pinpointed for us. What's really unusual about Amos as a prophet is that from his location in Tekoa, he is from Judah, the southern kingdom. But he was sent by God to prophesy to Israel, the northern kingdom. And, and that's rare among the prophets. Usually... If you were in Israel, you prophesied to Israel. If you were in Judah, you prophesied to Judah. But this is the reverse. A man from Judah is sent to Israel to prophesy to them. And incidentally, for that reason, we understand the date is early. It is before the destruction of uh, it, uh, the captivity of Israel in 721. So it's got to be prior to that. We dated around 750 or so. BC. Now, the fact that he was a man from Judah prophesying to Israel was not going to make him popular, and especially because of the message that he had to preach. You go back to chapter 7 again of Amos, and words that we didn't read, but we will read now from chapter 7, verse 12. Amaziah said to Amos, Go, you seer, flee to the land of Judah. There eat bread and there prophesy, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary and it is the royal residence. <clears throat> Bethel is, of course, 
if you remember Old Testament history, is in Samaria when the Jews uh, separated and there became a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Bethel was one of the capital places of Samaria, which is where the north would be. And it was also the place that idols were set up. Remember, the king said, I'm afraid that if, if, if the people go back to Jerusalem to worship, they'll stay or they'll be enticed there. And so let's create something for them to worship here. Obviously false, but it was an effort to pull the Israelites uh, close to them. And so the assignment of Amos, every assignment of a prophet was difficult because as we've already seen, as we'll continue to see before we finish the survey, prophets often had a message that was not helpful to the people as far as what they heard. It could have been helpful, but not a message that they wanted to hear. But this would be doubly difficult because it's a strong intense, condemning message to people that are not really your people in a sense. You're kinfolks, but you're not from their area. Um, and so we also think a little bit about the choices that God made concerning who would speak his word. This is one of those places that we begin to think about this. A sheep breeder? Really? He said, look, I wasn't a prophet. I wasn't even the son of a prophet. But God said, I want you to do this. And it makes us think about different people that God chose to be his representative. You come to the New Testament and you look at that group of men Jesus chose and say, really? Tax collector? Fisherman? Those are not the kind of people you would expect. Should have gone to the University of Jerusalem and gotten PhDs in religion and used them. No, God makes the choices that he sees are best. And often those choices are different from our choices. Now, that tells us God can use anyone that he chooses to accomplish his goals. We need to remember that. And it also highlights the fact that the men themselves did not carry out their work by themselves. Amos is very clear. Look, not me. God chose me to do this. And he presents his message as God's message. Okay, let's talk about the book of Amos. There's the man, now the book. After a very brief introduction, just this one verse, he gets immediately into how serious the conditions are in society, all society. And, and, and the message that he's going to deliver is basically a message of doom. Now, what he does, interestingly, is that he starts with Israel's neighbors. And he basically works a clockwise pattern. These are not good neighbors. And, and he uses the same approach for each group. He will address his remarks about Damascus, Gaza, Tyre, Edom, Ammon, and Moab. That's from chapter 1, verse 3, all the way through chapter 2, verse 3. And let's just notice one of these as an example. Thus says the Lord, 
for three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. Let me stop there. Three is often a number of completion. Four is going over. It, it's an overflow. So when he says repeatedly, three transgressions, no for four, he means not just a transgression, a serious overflowing of transgression. What is the problem with Damascus? Because they have threshed Gilead with implements of iron. But I will send a fire into the house of Hazel, which shall devour the palaces of Ben-Hadad. I will also break the gate bar of Damascus, cut off the inhabitant from the valley of Avon, and the one who holds the scepter from Beth Eden. The people of Syria shall go captive to, to Kir, says the Lord. And so here is, here is a sin, a, a egregious sin, and God says you will be punished for it. He does that repeatedly of all of these. When you get to chapter 2, verse 4, the prophet turns to Judah, and he says, for three transgressions of Judah, and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because they have despised the law of the Lord and have not kept his commandments. Their, their lies lead them astray, lies which their fathers followed. But I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem. And incidentally, this is said a long time before it would actually happen. Prophecy, remember, we talked about earlier. Sometimes... Unfortunately, in people's mind, it's always only far into the future. Not always. Sometimes it's immediate. It's preaching to people and their immediate needs. Here is an example, though, of a prophecy of what will happen to Jerusalem in the future. Now, when you reach that point, you can almost imagine the delight of the northern kingdom folk as they heard the words of Amos. Wow. Great. All our enemies, even Judah, is going to be punished. But then Amos turns the guns on them. And beginning in chapter 2, verse 6, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel, and for four I will not turn away its punishment. Why? Because they sell the righteous for silver, and the poor for a pair of sandals. They pant after the dust of the earth, which is on the head of the poor, and pervert the way of the humble. A man and his father go into the same girl to defile my holy name. They lie down by every altar on clothes taken in pledge and drink wine of the condemned in the house of their God. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and he was as strong as the oaks, yet I, de I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also it was I who brought you up from the land of Egypt and led you forty years through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. I raised up some of your sons as prophets and some of your young men as Nazarites. Is it not so, O you children of Israel, says the Lord? But you gave the Nazarites wine to drink and commanded the prophet, saying, Do not prophesy. Here 
as the indictment unfolds, you see how very corrupt God's people had become. In the 750s, this is prior to the Assyrian captivity, 721, prosperity had reached what could be considered an all-time high in Israel. They were living in relatively peaceful conditions. Enemies were not attacking them at this moment. And so what did they think? We're peaceful. We're living in peace. We're wealthy. What could go wrong? But the result of that prosperity and that peace was greed and immorality and absolute unconcern for the needs of people. Later in the book, after establishing this, five visions are given to Amos. And we don't know if these were at one time or they were separated in some ways, but there are five of them. First of them in chapter 7, 1 through 3, is a locust plague. And incidentally, we talked earlier in an earlier study about locusts and how devastating they could be. And then in 7, verse 4 through 6, a devouring fire. And incidentally, let me note one thing with you. In, in chapter 7, the first plague, the plague of locusts, you will notice in verse 2 that Amos pleads for his people, O oh Lord God, forgive, I pray, oh that Jacob may stand, for he is small. Then notice, for the Lord, so the Lord relented concerning this, it shall not be, said the Lord. The, the next one on the devouring fire, 4 through 6, when you get to verse 5, again Amos pleads, O oh Lord, cease, I pray, O oh that Jacob may stand, for he is small, and the Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be. When you get to the third one, though, the third one, a plumb line in verses 7 through 9, Amos ceases pleading, doesn't plead anymore. And maybe he is, through these visions, seeing won't do any good to keep on asking me not to punish these people. I listened to you. I didn't bring these things on them. But there has to come a time of reckoning. A plumb line would, in our thinking, would mark something being straight or marked precisely. If it didn't match the plumb line, it was crooked. Uh, and, and so the essence of the vision is there's a crookedness in Israel. They don't match up to God's standard. And obviously they didn't. And then in verses 8 through, I mean, chapter 8, verses 1 through 14, there is a long vision about a basket of summer fruit. And, and uh, Jack Lewis, and I'll refer to him a little bit later if we have time, uh, makes an interesting comment in which there is seemingly a play on words in, uh, in the Hebrew language. Because uh, two Hebrew words, summer and end, are basically the same thing. And, and, and what his point was, is God saying, this is summer fruit, you don't realize it's really the end. 
You, you think this is the time of gathering in. No, it's the end. Because the summer fruit will be rotten, of course. And then in chapter 9, verses 1 through 10, the Lord standing beside the altar. Uh, Amos sees this. And he strikes the capitals, the, t- the pillars, so that there is a great uh, crash, a, a turmoil. Now, when you get to chapter 9, the, the final chapter, at the very end of the book, there is a glimmer of hope. There is a promise of a wonderful future for God's people. I'm going to read it quickly. Chapter 9, verse 11. Oh, on that day I will raise up the tabernacle of the tent of David, which has fallen down, and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine and the hills shall flow with it. I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall make, also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. So here is a, a ray of hope that in spite of the fact that you have to be punished, you can't get away with sin, I'm going to provide you a future. Okay, now let's go to Obadiah. Obadiah the man. We, as compared to Amos, we have no details about this man. Uh, we don't know his background. We don't know his home. We don't know anything else about him. His name means servant of Jehovah. And, and adding a little further to what might be confusion is there are 13 different Obadiah's mentioned in the Old Testament. And we have no absolute idea which one of those 13 this one is. But there are 13 of them. He's one of them. And, and he is the one whose message we do know about. So let's think about the book. We can't talk too much about the man. How about the book? First of all, it's the shortest book in the Old Testament. One chapter, 21 verses. That's it. Uh, the message, and we talked about this last week, about the different prophets. Some prophesied to Israel, some to Judah. Some prophesied to and about non-Jews. Next week we'll look at Jonah, and Jonah will be doing that. He'll be prophesying to Nineveh, uh, not God's chosen people, but Nineveh. But here the message is for the Edomites. And... Uh, Interesting history here of the Edomites, descendants of Esau. Um, someone has said, you couldn't have a family feud longer than this one. Why? Where did it begin? In the womb. In the womb, because Jacob was hanging on to his heel. And, and that's how Jacob, the heel holder, got his name. Um, Throughout the time, then there, as you know the story of Jacob and Esau, I don't have to repeat that for you, there would be a separation. Jacob would be God's chosen. Esau would not be God's chosen. But, but God intended to bless him. 
and he would be blessed. But that condition didn't stay good. It, it got bad, and, and uh, it, it, it happened repeatedly, evidently. We don't even probably know all the occasions, but, and, and I'm not going to read this one for you, but Numbers 20, be sure and note that. Numbers 20 is, is that time in the wilderness when the Jews wanted to pass through their land to get to their promised land, and the Edomites said, no, can't do it. We're not going to let you do it. And we're ready to meet them with force to keep them out of their land. But that's not the worst, evidently, because look at Amos. It's interesting, we're going back to Amos. Amos 1 and verse 11. One of the, trans, one of the transgressors that Amos prophesied about was Edom. Look in verse 11. For three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. Because, notice, he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. Wow. Look at Psalm 137. Psalm 137. Now this is a much later time, evidently. A much later time. Psalm 137, verse 7. O Lord, remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it, or raise it, to its very foundation. Who, who not only were unsympathetic for the plight of their kinsmen, and they were kinsmen in truth, not sensitive to that plight, they in fact evidently participated in it and, and, and welcomed it. They enjoyed seeing the destruction of Jerusalem. Again, that would be a later time. Let, let's talk about some of the major themes of these two letters. And one of them that we notice immediately is the conduct of society. Um, Amos noted that there were some terrible sins going on among God's people. Yes, he saw a lot of sinfulness in the nations around them. That would be expected, I guess, because those people didn't know God. They didn't honor God. But what about seeing it among God's people? These were people who were supposed to be different. These were people who knew what God wanted from them and for them and what was right and what was wrong, and yet their behavior was no better than their neighbor's behavior. If you look at Amos chapter 3, Amos chapter 3 verse 2, here's what God's idea is. You only have I known of all the families of the earth Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Look, you, you, you are my chosen people. And, and I'm going to punish you because of what you have done. What have they done? Well, look at chapter 3, verse 9. Proclaim in the palaces at Ashdod and in the palaces in the land of Egypt and say, assemble on the mountains of Samaria. 
see great tumults in her midst and the oppressed within her. For they do not know to do right, says the Lord, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. People were oppressed. Not just by the ruler, chapter 4, verse 1. And I'm sorry, ladies, but these are the words of Amos. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. That's the wives. Who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, and cr who crush the needy, who say to their husbands, bring wine and let us drink. It wasn't just the officials. It had filtered down into all of society and among the rich wives. Um, chapter 5 and verse 12. God was fully aware of what was going on. For I know your manifold transgression. Manifold means many. Your numerous transgressions and your mighty sins. What? Afflicting the just and taking bribes, diverting the poor from justice at the gate. There was no justice in Israel. There was bribery going on. Now, what do we get from that? One of the things we better get from it is that if we are God's people, we have to be sensitive to those who struggle in life. We cannot turn a blind eye to the poor and disadvantaged. Look in the New Testament for just a moment, the book of James. And we're talking about the fifth chapter. Excuse me, I should have said that. James 5. Listen to James. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of your laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived on earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. Having said that, and, and I'm, I, I hope you don't think I'm contradicting myself, we also understand a need for balance. A need for balance. Some religious groups in our world today, and particularly in America, pay more attention to correcting social ills than they pay attention to what salvation is. It's great to be concerned about the poor, but if that's your only concern, and you continually minister to the poor, but you don't have any message that saves their souls, you've not really helped them. Because a well-fed poor person in hell is no better than a hungry person in hell. We don't believe that Paul was lacking any compassion when he wrote what he did in 1 Thessalonians. Look at chapter 5. Those of you who have already been in one class in Thessalonians 
remember this. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize whose labor among you and over you in the Lord, seem them very highly in love for their work's sake. But back in, in verse, uh, no, I got it wrong, didn't I? Three, was it chapter, is it chapter three? Well, Second Thessalonians, you go to Second Thessalonians, we know that one. What I really should have been saying was that Paul said earlier that when he was there in First Thessalonians, what he said earlier was, we didn't eat bread at any man's expense. We worked. We worked. We ate our own bread. And now look at Second Thessalonians 3. I'm pretty sure I got this one right. Verse 7. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we are not disorderly among you, nor do we eat bread for free of charge, work with labor day and, and toil, night and day, that might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this. Notice. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. You don't work, you don't eat. And, and what that really means is the church is not responsible for feeding people who won't work for themselves. Now, some people can't work. That's why we have a lot of government programs helping those who are disadvantaged. But it's not the church's responsibility to take care of all of the poor of society. We, we have compassion, and we show that compassion, but not to the extent that we forget that the soul is more important than the body. Let me talk a little bit about neighbors in need. Edom was condemned by Obadiah because of the attitude that they showed toward the Jews uh, of Judah. If you look at verses uh, 13 and 14 of Obadiah, you should not have entered the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Indeed, you should not have gazed on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. You should not have stood at the crossroads to cut off those among them who escape, nor should you have delivered up those among them who remain in the day of distress. Edomites were guilty not only of unconcern, they were guilty of adding to and participating in the calamity that befell Jerusalem. Incidentally, talking about all my errors, it, on your lesson sheet, on the back side of your lesson sheet, there is a mistake, and it's uh, under B. There is no proverb 17B. It's supposed to be 17 5B, Proverbs, and I want you to look there so you can actually see it. Proverbs 17 and verse 5, the second part. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. I think maybe one of the things we need to take from that is If, if a bomb went off in an area that is peopled by those who are hostile to America, would you rejoice over it? I don't think you should. 
I don't think we should rejoice in the death of our enemies even. At least that's what Obadiah is saying to Edom. You, you shouldn't have rejoiced in the calamity of the Jews. You know, Jesus told a wonderful parable in the New Testament about coming to the aid of others. We, we refer to it a lot. The Good Samaritan, we call him. And, and that parable was obviously a rebuke of the Jews who evidently were unconcerned about others because, you look, Jesus picked out who to be unconcerned, a priest and a Levite, when you expect concern from them. And he picks out as the hero of the story a Samaritan. Can you imagine those hated Samaritans? And yet he is the one Jesus... And so Jesus shows this matter of unconcern about people's plight is not good. Look at Matthew 23, just a second. Matthew 23. And verse 14. 23, 14. Just the second part of the... I mean, the first part of the verse. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Notice. For you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. You devour widows' houses. Um, I, I, well, I don't know if I should tell this or not. I'm going to tell you something. Don't tell anybody, okay? A number of years ago, while I was in India, I got a very distressing report about a translator, not somebody we've worked with for a long time, who was purchasing distressed widows' houses at a fraction of what they were worth and becoming a landlord. Not good. Not good. Didn't offer to help them. Didn't offer to, to get them out of debt or to help them not stay in debt. Just bought their property at a distressed rate and then kicked them out and became a landlord to make money. So it's not just something that happened in biblical times. I think the fact that Obadiah condemned the Edomites shows that there is a universal law of God about treating people fairly. Not just that Christians are supposed to treat others fairly. We are. But actually God cares that everyone treat everyone fairly. And obviously that doesn't always happen. Let me give you a couple of things that are not on the lesson sheet very quickly. One has to do with security. The Edomites believed that they dwelt in a very secure place. And by most records, they did. It was a very mountainous area, uh, about 100 miles long and about 20 miles wide, had a lot of cliffs, and they were cliff dwellers. In fact, the, the great uh, city of Petra was there. Uh, Petra was there, and it was easy to defend, but we're going to study in a couple of weeks. Look at Malachi, the final book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 1. And look at verses 3 and 4. <clears throat> but Esau I have hated and laid waste his mountains and his heritage. Uh, 
for the jackals of the wilderness. Even though Edom has said, we have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Lord, they may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Those that the Edomites thought were their friends actually turned out to be their enemies. Obadiah, the seventh verse. All the men in your confederacy shall force you to the border. The men at peace with you shall deceive you and prevail against you. Those who eat your bread shall lay a trap for you. No one is aware of it. It's nothing like thinking you're secure and then your allies turn against you. It would be foolish to trust in people completely or yourself completely rather than trusting in God. Obviously, there's a lesson about we reap what we sow. Edom could not escape God's punishment, and it's still true today. Galatians 6, verse 7 and 8. Don't, don't be deceived. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. By 100 A.D., by the time the New Testament closes, no more Edomites. They're gone. And gone forever. Let me get one more thing to you, please, and then we'll be out of time. Um, Jack Lewis, I mentioned earlier, a longtime teacher at Harding Graduate School in Memphis, in his booklet on the Minor Prophets, wrote about what he called strongholds that are not strong. And I appreciate that. I wanted to share it with you. He talks about having false confidence, which the, the Jews obviously had. I'm talking about during the time of Amos. And here's what they might have said. God is our God, and we are his people. Incidentally, that same attitude carried over in the New Testament, didn't it? We're sons of Abraham. Nothing can happen to us. That, but what that really means is greater responsibility. If God is our God and we are his people, we're responsible for how we act. They might have said this, chapter 2, verse 10. Hey, he brought us out of Egypt. And the implication is, he can't abandon us now. He led us out of Egypt. He'll never give up on us. And then probably one of the worst of all, we worship regularly. Amos 4, verses 4 and 5 show that they hadn't stopped bringing sacrifices. But there was nothing behind it. There was no real intent to honor God. And so we learned this. God demands right, R-I-G-H-T, not just rights, R-I-T-E-S. God demands that we do right in our treatment of others, in our worship to Him, and our living for Him. Not just going through the motions. Not just saying, oh, I've been to worship. Everything ought to be okay. I've been to worship. Not necessarily. Didn't help these Jews. Thanks for being here today. Appreciate it.